name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So today, I'm kind of excited to talk about the book of Jonah. It's one of those books that you can read in one sitting. It's four chapters, and it really speaks to us in our lives today. So Jonah and the Whale is one of those iconic stories that even people that have never been to church that are just part of the culture know the basic narrative. Um, but it has a lot of imagery and metaphors that are very relevant into exactly this moment in time. It's so much more than a big fish. It's about us. It's about you and me. So a quick review, just in case, for the whole thing, because we've got just a small snippet today. There was a prophet named Jonah who didn't want to do what God was telling him to do. So he ran away on a boat as far as he could get from God's plan. There was a terrible storm, and the sailors who were pagans on the boat um, asked Jonah if he knew why they were having such a terrible storm. They had actually drawn straws to see who, who could be responsible for this. Jonah tells them, throw me overboard into the sea, and then the storm will stop. The pagan sailors realized he was running away from God and prayed, you are God, do what you think is best, as they threw him into the sea. God assigned a big fish, it doesn't say a whale in the Hebrew, a big fish to swallow Jonah for three days and nights. There's an obvious symbolism there. And Jonah confesses to needing help. I'll do what I promise to do. Salvation belongs to God. Now this is while he's sitting inside the fish, who eventually um, vomits him up on the shore. And God tries again. How about now, Jonah? And so Jonah goes to Nineveh, the nation that has been violent, terribly violent and oppressive to Israel. And he delivers God's message to repent. So why is Jonah so reluctant? He hates the Ninevites. And he yells at God for forgiving the penitent Ninevites, saying, I knew it. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. And then he, full of resentment and bitterness, sits on a hill overlooking the city, waiting for the destruction, not God's will to be done. And God tenderly comes to him and says, why are you still angry? Well, if you don't see your life or your life with God in this story, just send me an email and we can talk about it. God says, basically, do this, and you run the other way, thinking that God must be kidding or maybe not in touch with your real life or not knowing what should be done. God commands us to love God above all things, and yet we grab at anything that we think will might make us feel secure. You know, Jesus' summary of the law is to love God with all our heart, mind, and spirit, and love our neighbor as ourself. This command is very clear, but our ability to do this is not clear. We get in our own way. You know, Jonah says salvation belongs to God alone, but we look out for an easier, softer way. Stubborn self-reliance kind of makes static noise out of the guidance and comfort of God. 
So we, like Jonah, are obstinate in our opinions and plans for our lives. We want God to bless our will, to see things our way, to hate who we hate. We want our enemies to be God's enemies. So there are several points that I think are key for us in this passage from Jonah today. The first is about the storm. You know, Tim Keller says, all sin has a storm attached. Capital S sin, so sin that's out in the world, sin that is part of the human condition, is obstinance and self-righteousness of self-will and self-reliance that rebels against God. We've seen this since the Garden of Eden. As Ethan mentioned in our adult ed last week, we push the good away. We're always looking for change, but we also want to be the conductor of that change, the director of that show. The storm is the collision of self-serving, colliding with God's purposes for us and for others. Scholar Derek Kidner writes, Sin sets up strains in the structure of life, which can only end in breakdown. If we build our lives and meaning on anything more than God, we are acting against the grain of the universe and of our own design and therefore of our own being. Placing anything above God puts us in a storm of confusion, self-pity, spiritual emptiness, and tiresome rage. It's easy to blame others for the storms in our lives, but the storm is actually within us in this rebellion. Our human reactions to threat and uncertainty, our certainty and threat, our storming hearts can only be truly calmed by forgiveness and a relationship of grace, which is the work of the Holy Spirit of Christ. So the second point that we hear in this story today about Jonah is about deserving. Jonah does not believe that the Ninevites deserve to be saved or be given a chance to repent even. Jonah is the only prophet to be sent to a pagan nation instead of to the Hebrew nation. He's not just preaching to the choir. The Ninevites are Assyrians, which were violent enemies of God's chosen people. And Jonah refused to believe that they were on equal standing, equal footing with the religious and favored nation of Israel. Keller writes, Sin always hardens the conscience, locks you in the prison of your own defensiveness and rationalizations, and eats you up slowly from the inside. You know, this relates to our everyday life, especially in our family and religious life. We paste over our fears and anxieties with a hard covering of defensiveness, which really cuts us off from what we want, which is to be loved and accepted and known. We, like Jonah, project non-deserving on others because subconsciously we fear that we are undeserving of love and forgiveness. You know, St. Paul tells us in Romans 3, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us deserves grace. That's what makes it so amazing. God lovingly pursues Jonah despite his ongoing rejection of the love of God for the pagans. So when I was young, I wondered why God cared if I loved my neighbor as long as I loved God. Wasn't that the point? 
Well, what has become clear to me is that God wants me to love my neighbor because the neighbor is God's child. And God wants all of his children to be loved. It is his will for us. Does this mean that God doesn't care that the Ninevites had been murderous and oppressive, like misbehaving children? No, God cares so much about that that he sends Jonah, the reluctant prophet, to bring news of the offer of repentance so that they may live. God never gives up on us, no matter what we have done or left undone. He is always after us with one-way love. He starts it. We love because he first loved us, it tells us in 1 John. So the third point is about Jonah's nationalism. You know, Rector Paul Walker brought this up in the weekly parish email when he wrote, I'm also reminded that though we thank God for our nation, our primary allegiance is neither patriotic nor nationalistic. Instead, as St. Paul preached to the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Tim Keller tells us about how this plays out in Jonah, that Jonah's particular national identity was more foundational to his self-worth than his role as a servant of the God of all the nations. When Jonah refused a direct order to bring God's message to the Ninevites, he was making a decision to put Israel's national and political interests ahead of God's will. To make your nation and race more important than God is by definition to make them into idols. Reverend Keller really hit me kind of straight between the eyes because I greatly love my country, which is a gift from God, but had self-righteously ventured into the land of being above God's commands. In God we trust, but we trust our country to God. Tim Mackey points out that the book of Jonah is a satire where prophets don't do God's will, but the people do. God addresses us through this book. Is your anger justified, he asks in the last chapter? This book holds up a mirror to the one who reads it by asking, Are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemy? In Jonah, we see the worst parts of our own character magnified, which should generate humility and gratitude that God would love his enemies and put up with the Jonah in all of us. As Christians, we know what the Jonah story is pointing toward. Jesus speaks of himself as the ultimate Jonah in Matthew 12, 41, saying, Something greater than Jonah is here. The book of Jonah is a well-crafted prologue to the intervention of God into the world of darkness by coming as the Christ, who is the light and the power of love, the true government of our lives. God loves us even when we are enemies to him and his other children which is the true transformation of our hearts and minds. So I'd like to end with a prayer written by our bishops to comfort us during these days. God of all ages, keep us mindful of the loving guidance you give us. We may not yet know all, 
But if we are guided by love and are instruments of God's love, we honor you. We don't know what is ahead. So our best path is to look for you and your path of love. We may not ever know the whole story, at least in our own lifetimes. Jesus reminded us of that. But we do know this. You are love. You are eternal love. You created us in love to be sharers of love. This is our work for those who suffer, for those who are victims of injustice, for those who are hurting, for those who are confused. Guide us in this work so that we are reflections of the love that created us. Reorient us when we are mistaken. Strengthen us when we are afraid. Lift us up when we are tired. With love. Always with love. Amen.